Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 18th, 2018, and my guest is economist and author Brian Kaplan of George Mason University. He blogs at EconLog, which, like EconTalk, is part of EconLib.org, the Library of Economics and Liberty. His latest book is The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money, which is the subject of today's conversation. This is Brian's, Brian's seventh appearance on EconTalk. His most recent was in April 2014, almost four years ago, when we talked about many of the topics that are in his book. I'm hoping to take a new approach today to the topic based on the work Brian's done in the meanwhile and um, bring up some other stuff along the way as well. Brian, welcome back to Econ Talk. Always a pleasure. I've been away too long. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, I guess I could, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I want to start uh, with the empirical finding that is at the heart of, of your book, which is that schooling pays, and in particular, uh, for an individual, uh, college, graduating from college, uh, creates a large premium. I said that incorrectly. College graduates earn a lot more than high school graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number you quote in the book, I think, is 73%. Yep. Uh, I want to start by pointing out that's a mean, an average, not a median. Do we have the median number? Someone has it, but it's not the one that economists focus on because all of our econometrics are set up around means. Yeah, which is weird because, of course, the the mean has the f- people from the far right-hand tail, of which they are somewhat numerous from for college mm-hmm. grads and somewhat much less numerous for high school grads. Right. Now, you give, as everyone does, you lay out three theories in the book for why – uh, college graduates might earn more than high school graduates. And of course, you're also skeptical of K through 12 education. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. get to that along the way. But I want to start by focusing on the premium that's earned by college grads. What are the three main theories for why uh, college graduates might earn more than uh, own people who only graduate from high school? Right. So the first story is called Human Capital, and it just says that people earn more, uh, or people with more education earn more money because they have been trained effectively for the jobs they're going to do. So school, you go to school, it gives you more skills, you make more money. Nice, simple story. Uh, the main story that I am pushing the book is called Signaling. This says that, yes, going to school does cause your earnings to go up, but the reason isn't so much that you are learning useful skills is that you're getting certified. You're getting a stamp on your forehead saying, grade A premium worker, hire this person. And then the last story is uh, called ability bias. This one just says that it's just coincidental that people with more education make more money. And rather what's going on is it's the kind of thing that wealthy people, the people who are going to be wealthy rather do, just like people who go and ski in St. Moritz uh, tend to be wealthy. You could go and say, well, people who ski in St. Moritz earn 300% more than other people in Italy, so that must be a great place to go to get rich. And there's no, no, it's not that it's a great place to go to get rich. It's a place that you go to spend the money that, that, you've made, that you have. So that's another story. It's just that it's coincidence, and it's, you know, education is the kind of thing wealthier people like doing or people who are going to be wealthy like doing. So I, I just want to reframe that last one just a bit 
because you've added something there than is usually mm-hmm. added, which is the reverse causation mm-hmm. that rich people like to spend money on education, rich mm-hmm. parents in this case. I want to stick with the simpler idea, simply that uh, the people who go to college rather than who yes. stick with just high school have more ability. Right. And their higher earnings just yes. reflect that. Sure, sure. So there's sure, of a, course. It's just a yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So they would have made more money anyway, even if they hadn't gone to school. Correct. And we don't observe that experiment. So uh, mm-hmm. we get misled by the premium. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to challenge Brian here because Brian is a, uh, I think, a very honest person in the. Well, thank you, Russ. I, I think, think you are. You. I think you are. It's a rare trait in, in our field. And it's a little bit weird because this book is. It's not a dishonest book, but it does have an agenda it, it, by its uh, – as you say, you focus on making the case mm-hmm. for signaling. But I think you're capable of passing the Turing test and making the ideological mm-hmm. Turing – the methodological Turing test here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge you to take each of the three cases you've just given us and make the best empirical case for each one. And let's leave signaling for last because that's your mm-hmm. – your, um, your offspring uh, that you care the most about. So I want you to first make this the case for the human capital argument, then the ability argument, and then I'm going to let you close with the uh, signaling. And this is prelude. This I'd like this to take maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes or so to get us started, maybe 15, and mm-hmm. I may interrupt your story. But there's empirical evidence for all of these, and of course, mm-hmm. they all, as you can see, can play a role. It's not like mm-hmm. – all 100% one or the right. other. And, and in fact, I say all three do play a role. And, and they do. But you find in your reading of the literature that it's overwhelmingly signaling. The number I think you assign is 80% is your approximate weighting. 80% signaling, 20% for those other factors. Well, so, so I, I, actually, so, you know, that's a little bit misleading, Russ, because again, what, what I really say is 80% of the causal effect is signaling. 80% of the causal effects. So that's really after we subtracted out the ability bias. Oh. I do have a big separate yeah, section fair on enough. that. Fair enough. Yes. So, okay. Yes. Good. You know, and again, my preferred estimate for ability bias is that you know, that subtracts off 45% of the apparent effect. And then, and then the remain, and then, then we have to divide that 55% between 20% human capital and 80% signaling. But so perhaps we don't disagree as much as you might think. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, good point. But right now, to start with, I want you to put on your human capital hat. Mm-hmm. You're a, you're a mainstream labor economist who thinks that this signaling is overrated. What's the best evidence we have that human capital, that is knowledge, skills, um, ability, not ability, but I don't know. Uh, where What's the right word? Um, uh, skill is acquired mm-hmm. in, in, in college. Give me the best empirical evidence for that claim. Uh, sure. So I would just start off with basic academic skills, reading, writing, and math are useful in a very wide range of jobs. And there's a lot of evidence that going to school raises those skills. So that would be where I would would begin. And then and probably the other thing that I would focus on is there is a whole literature in psychology on the effect of education on IQ. And the literature review that I that I build on in the book says that every year of education raises your IQ by between one and three points. There's a new meta analysis out there that says one to five points. 
uh, which is a little you know a bit higher, obviously, than what I was saying. So, and then I would say, look, so we got first of all like the actual teaching of the basic skills, so reading, writing, and math, and that you're definitely getting in school to some degree. And then there's this perhaps unexpected additional benefit of schooling making you smarter. Uh, so that's giving us another channel for education to actually be improving people's ability to do their jobs. And again, there's a whole literature on IQ is probably the single best predictor of job performance, uh, you know, assuming that it's available. Uh, so I'd say that's probably the single best case for human capital. Let me, let, me, um, let me challenge that in a different way than you're going to challenge it with mm-hmm. signaling, which is the following. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to pay you another compliment, Brian. You're, okay. one, you're one of the highest IQ people I hang around with in any casual way. We don't. Um, I'm skeptical of that, Russ. Yeah. But, well, but, but, uh, but, uh, but take, sure. just take of it. Course, just take of it. Of course. Of course. And, of course. And I won't. I won't. Um, although I could spend a great deal of time on my own IQ, I'll just suggest that it's above average. Um, but that, that's. Uh, we'll we'll leave it at that. You and I are definitely above average on IQ. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So, what I'd also suggest is that you and I are remarkably unfit. For most employment outside uh-huh. academic life, and so what I want you to ponder is your focus in the book on IQ and raw intelligence as correlated with job performance strikes me, strikes me as woefully thin. Uh, it seems to me that IQ is would be a, only a small part of job performance in many, many, many opportunities. Um, Communication skills, uh, empathy, reliability, integrity, uh, timeliness. I just there's so many other factors that I think of as important in real jobs as opposed to the jobs you and I have. Yeah, and I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right, Russ. Uh, but you know, here again, like I, I, mean, I did a lot of reading in industrial psychology, and you know, like you know, the standard view there coming out of a lot of empirical work is that the most, the single, the single most important predictor of job performance is indeed IQ. And while you and I might not be qualified for a lot of other jobs, uh, that's because we have some other other weird defects and, and quirks yep. about us. But in general, it's very hard to find any occupation at all where higher IQ doesn't predict uh, better job performance. But if you, you know, so, but you know, nevertheless, they also will say the second best predictor of job performance is conscientiousness, which captures all these other things that you're talking about. Uh, so, you know, like, and in the book, I do talk about the, those things as well. Uh, you know, again, the, the reason why I spend more time talking about IQ than conscientiousness in the book is just because there's so much more measurement of IQ, and so it's been much more researched, and the conscientiousness stuff is just much thinner, unfortunately. But you know, again, the, you know, the industrial psychologists who, who uh, really do work on this will say you know, very much what you're saying, and I do try to really, really relay, relay their message, which is, sure, there's, there's you know, like IQ is by far the only predictor of job performance, but it is, it is the single best one, although, of course, tons of other stuff is important, too. Yeah, I, I just think that that says more about industrial psychology than it does about uh, how the market job market works? These 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 guys are really empirical. They actually well, that's know good. that's and, their and, shortcoming. <laughs> I, I'd argue that's their shortcoming. They're stuck with this really incredibly precise three digit number uh, that that lulls yeah. yeah, them into thinking yeah, but, yeah, that they have something. But yeah, they they're also going and tra- looking at every possible measure they can get of job performance. So ones where you can actually measure like number of widgets per hour, they do that. They do employer ratings to job performance. You know, they're you know they're they're, they're really you know, they are looking at it from every angle. It's the kind of thing where, though you know, economists have been sort of chuckling at uh, psychologist replication problems lately. 
again, like, you know, we're, we are picking the worst stuff. And like when you go and well, at least, at least for me, when I go and read these industrial psychologists say, wow, I'm, I'm ashamed that economists are so ignorant of what they're doing. Well, I, I, I'd suggest if you talk to um, an employer mm-hmm. and ask them what's the, what are the most important factors in job performance and how would they weight them? I'm not sure they, I don't think they'd pick IQ to dominate everything else. Uh, I, I, I'm just thinking about so many people who I've met outside of academic life mm-hmm. who I suspect I have a higher IQ than they do, and they're so many times more effective and skilled at what they do, partly because they've specialized in it, mm-hmm. uh, but partly because I'm just not good at those things. So I, I just want to mention that I think it's actually mm-hmm. – I think it's quite an important issue, actually, this issue of what we can measure, what we can't measure. We'll come back to it perhaps when we talk about some of the other uh, aspects of schooling. But let's go on now to the ability argument. I'm an ability guy. Mm-hmm. I think this human capital argument and the signaling argument is nonsense. All the return to education is is just the fact that more skilled people are the ones who go to college. And mm-hmm. therefore, and this is a key point, and therefore, if you encourage more people to go to college, they won't get particularly uh, higher income uh, because they're mm-hmm. not like the people who choose to go now. And the analogy here would be, uh, which I use all the time on the program, is since basketball – Professional basketball plays, pays more than being an economist. I should just – I made a mistake. I should mm-hmm. be a professional basketball player. It's obviously that's not going to work mm-hmm. out. I'm missing something important there at five foot six. So Right, right, right. Or just to slightly uh, you know, tweak your metaphor, I would say that it's like saying because professional basketball players practice basketball all the time, if you too practice basketball as much as they do, you would be as successful as they are. Yeah, good one. So what's the case uh, – so make the case for the ability argument. Right. So, you know, so this just says that the people that graduate from college were more talented all along. And if they had just decided to go and skip college, they could have gone straight into the labor force and done a lot better. And again, I'd say that you know, the best case for this is when we actually go and get measures of ability and then try to and then use them as control variables for uh, control variables in the kinds of statistical equations that we use to predict income. Turns out that when we go and control for these measures of ability, that a lot of what appears to be a payoff for education really is a payoff for ability. And then I think you strengthen this by saying, well, that's just for the abilities that we can measure. And then there's probably also a bunch of unmeasured abilities. And if we could get if we could get measures of those and put those in, then maybe the payoff for education would be minuscule. And that's very disheartening, of course. It's somewhat mm-hmm. unlikely in that People do go to college. You could argue they go for consumption reasons. Right, or because they're confused. Or they're they're misled. (laughs) Because they're children who have been brainwashed by their parents and teachers. So You have to um, go to college. Yeah, so maybe. Uh, So – but there is some – there is some – as you say, there's evidence obviously that people who do go to college are not the same as people who don't. It's not Mm -hmm. a random draw from each each pool. Uh, What's left for signaling to explain? Why is signaling – why are you persuaded by the argument behind signaling? Right. Uh, so, you know, step one is, I mean, I, so like you know, the way that I do in the book, and I think the way that makes the most sense in terms of comprehension is just to start with ability bias to see how much of the apparent effect of education on career success is genuine, right? And this is where economists have these standard things where they say, all right, you don't think it's genuine. Why not? Tell me why not. All right. You think that people that go to college uh, were smarter to begin with and that smarts matter in the labor market, or maybe you think they're hardworking and work ethic matters, all right, let's go and get measures of these things that you think that matter, put them into an, put them into our predictive equation, and then redo the equation and see whether education still is as lucrative as it first appears. 
All right. So that, uh, so again, like I have, I, I go and review all of the research on that. Um, and so like the main one that really works really well again is IQ. So if you go and put an IQ in as a control variable, then you'll generally see that the payoff for education will shrink by some, you know, you know, it's like something, something like 30%. Uh, you know, sometimes a bit less. So, you know, other times a little bit more, but you know, roughly by thirty percent. And then there's other things that people put in in order to, you know, the, to go and capture the you know, effective work ethic, uh, you know, punctuality, you know, you know, conscientiousness in general, those kinds of things. So that literature is quite a bit thinner. But again, my best guess is that adds on another fifteen percent. So I, in the book, I mostly work with this forty-five percent ability bias estimate. So really, what I do is I just look at the raw. The raw, uh, you know, the observed, uh, the observed uh, difference in earnings between people who have more education and less, and I subtract out forty-five percent of that, and then that leaves us with the thing that's really that, that's the where the rainer is, right? So this is the part that's causal. This is if you go to college, say this will in fact cause you to get more money, but then there's a the question about why, right? So why, you know, why? So you know why? And again, that's where human capital and signaling disagree. So human capital says that the, the why is because you've received training and useful job skills of one kind or another. And signaling says that it's because you've got this big stamp on your forehead saying, you know, grade A or a grade A quality worker. Now, why do I put so much more weight on that second story, the signaling story than the human capital story? Uh, a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, again, you know, the first one is just to look at the curriculum and to see how irrelevant to the modern labor market so much of the curriculum is. So if you just look, if you just go down and look at you know, like what is the, the what is the way that high school students spend their time, it's shocking how what a small what a small share of it is actually spent on reading, writing, and math. So you know like under fifty percent for most students. So what's going on with the other stuff? The stuff you know like like you know are you really going to use your knowledge of history or you know like in the, you know, like is a is a non-native speaker of Spanish who gets three years of high school Spanish really going to get a job as a translator or like any job that requires knowledge of Spanish seems pretty hard to believe. Uh, so there's that of just looking at the curriculum. Uh, and then you can do the same thing when we if you take a look at college majors. You can see that while there are some college majors that seem vocational, that's a, that's a, a small minority of them. So electrical engineering seems pretty vocational, but uh, you know communications is a much bigger major. Right, history, history. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think. Let's see, right? Right. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, psychology, 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 yeah, psychology. Yeah, so communication, psychology, both much more common than engineering, and yet uh, we still see the people in these majors that they make less money than the engineers. They still make a lot more money than high school graduates. Uh, you know, people who only graduated from high school. Uh, so, and this is true even after going and making all the adjustments that people have made in the research for, uh, you know, for pre-existing ability and everything else. Uh, so there's that. Um, and again, to my mind, that's really, uh, that's really some of the most convincing stuff. It's just looking at what is the students are studying? Like, this seems so irrelevant to what they're ever likely to do in their future. So that's, that's pretty hard to believe. Uh, then, uh, I go over, you know, a bunch of the counter stories. So, you know, like one of the most popular ones is that, well, sure, you're not going to lose, you use your knowledge of history on the job, but it taught you how to think. You learned how to learn. And that's where I go and turn to educational psychology and say, hey, these guys have been studying this learning how to learn, learning how to think idea for a century. What do they conclude? And what they conclude is there's very little to it. It's mostly, it's mostly wishful thinking. Uh, so again, like the, you know, this is you know a highly experimental field, but there's also some other ways of doing it too, where they just see that people are really bad at taking something they learned you know, they learned and then transferring it over to a different area. People are really bad at taking something learned in a classroom and, and transferring it to a practical task. 
you can teach someone the Pythagorean theorem, but it doesn't mean that when they're building a birdhouse that they will you actually use the Pythagorean theorem. Um, you know, and so you know, people really are, re- are really bad at that. Uh, then on this uh, this IQ point that I mentioned of education raising IQ, uh, so and while there is, while you know there there is definitely something to this, uh, the main thing though is that the gains look very hollow. Uh, which means that it looks mostly like it's just teaching you the test. You know, like you, if you give someone test prep, you can improve them in every in anything. But it's, uh, you know, so it seems like a lot of what school does it functions like IQ test prep. But it does, so the idea that it's genuinely making them smarter in some practical way is you know like, like you know, see, you know, the, you know the reason you know, at least seems like a lot a lot a lot of the gain that I was talking about like that one to three points a lot of that is probably just hollow doesn't really mean doesn't really mean anything as in practical matters. Sorry, right. I'm going to yeah, challenge. There's one other thing that I think that's very powerful, which is the sheepskin effect. We talked about that last time we talked. Oh, yeah. We're going uh, yeah, yeah. to come back to sure. it. We're going to come back to it. But I, w- I want to talk about this issue of the learning how to learn, um, mm-hmm. which I think is is really interesting and really important and, and really hard to measure. So mm-hmm. some of the kind of evidence that you use in, the, in, the, in your book I find totally unpersuasive, so I'm going to – mention what that is and then you can defend it if you want you you give a number of examples where people take exams after as a as adults they don't remember anything from their history class right right, right. Um, so that's, that's about that's about retention which is a different subject yeah it's totally different yeah, and i yeah. i just i don't think the goal of i think let me say it say it this way i think it's extremely difficult to test or measure the impact of of k through 12 or college major on one's uh, neural networks, your your brain pathways in um, in the future. And one reason I'll say that is that I think it's – I probably mentioned this before on the program, but I think it's remarkable how little we remember of anything mm-hmm. that we did in K through 12. Mm-hmm. You know, I, if you said, remember, try to conjure up everything you learned. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll bring up four or five memories that have – and that's about it. I might have mm-hmm. ten uh, I have one teacher I've mentioned before on here, Miss Kaneen. I have I have more of her than anyone else. I have more of of of, of Mr. Smythe, my philosophy professor in college. Uh, I have a few from economics, but it, it's it's shocking how many hours you spend in those classrooms and how little you you remember. And I would say that's the same of econ talk. I know there's a number of listeners here have listened for over 600 hours. God bless all of you, uh, as well as those listening for the first time, but. I doubt those people who've listened 600 hours could tell me a lot of things about what they remember. They could say a few things. They could say, I remember that time you got into the fight with so-and-so. They might say, you know, Brian Kaplan's a fantastic guest. You should have him on more often. But if I said, I've had Brian on six times before this, what can you remember? They might remember one story or one insight. They might remember you're in favor of immigration. And yet, does that really, do those memories really capture what, has happened through those 600 hours or the similarly large number of hours we spend K through 12 or in college? I'd say the answer is no. There's all kinds of subtle things going on there that we certainly can't remember. And you couldn't tease out of me if you tried, mm-hmm. but to suggest that nothing's happened because I can't remember it or it can't be revealed on a test seems to me a very poor measure. Hmm. I, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that, Russ. So I would say if there's no designable test that can show that people learn something, then they haven't learned it. Right? I mean, you might say the test is bad, in which case I would say, fine, design a better test and then show it to me. But if you want to say that people have been transformed, but it's a way that no one can actually show, no matter how hard they try, 
then I'm going to say no. That just sounds like wishful thinking. Uh, but I mean, but you know, so like, you know, but you know, there's a big difference between being able to have specific memories of someone teaching you how teaching you how to read, say, and whether or not you can read. Yeah, it's true. So, <laughs> all right, I can now, read. You, now, now you might say maybe you could read if you hadn't gone to school. So what I do in the book actually is I could all, I, yes, I could read yes. yes. I could read before I went to school, right? But that does not yeah. mean maybe, maybe that I got learned, nothing maybe, out of English yeah. class. Maybe it may, maybe you learn how to read better. But what I do in the book is I try to actually bend over backwards and uh, to be fair to education. I say this: let's just give let's just give education credit for one hundred percent of what people know. All right, now that's an overstatement, of course. It can't like you know, people learn in other ways. But I say let's just give uh, education credit for everything people know, and then see how much they know. So, you know, and that's where I think those tests of people's historical knowledge are directly on point because, you know, know, these are very basic questions. Uh, You know, again, it's not about when did you learn about uh, how many, how many senators every state has, but do you know that every, that how many senators each state has? And when half Americans can't do that, I will just say they don't know it in any sense. And all the efforts to teach them about the number of senators per state were in vain if they do not know it as adults. I, I disagree. So let me let, let me give take another shot at it. I don't disagree with that last point. I, I don't think we're very good at teaching people how many senators are because it doesn't matter much. Most people don't care. So that's not that's not so surprising to me. But here's the thing I would give as an example. Uh, I have uh, I've interviewed Nassim Taleb a number of times on this program. Mm-hmm. In the course of doing that, I've read his books, and I've interviewed a number of people related to the issues that that came up in those conversations. Uh, Philip Tetlock on uh, forecasting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but a, a number of other people ha- have have spent an hour with me, and I've spent more than that with their books or their articles or their essays, uh, trying to figure out and understand randomness and uncertainty and probability. And like you, I took econometrics in mm-hmm. in graduate school. I was formerly. Uh, trained in that to, to the extent that I was. I, mean, I took some, I spent a lot of time on it. Uh, I certainly, I took statistics as an undergraduate and um, I've learned a ton from those conversations and that reading mm-hmm. uh, after graduate school. And I think you'd be very, and I have a much different, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I have a much different and subtler appreciation for randomness, uh, for the nature of uncertainty, for decision-making under uncertainty. And I don't think you could test that. I don't think you could uh, design a test that would that would pull that out of me. Yeah, I say it'd be easy. In fact, if we go back to the first first minute first minute of the show, remember when at the very first minute of the show you caught yourself and you talked about how we see that education causes a seventy three percent rise in earnings, and then you self corrected, Russ. Yeah. You said, "Oh no, no, no! What I should say is they earn seventy three percent more." That is your knowledge of correlation versus causation, which you spontaneously used and yep. applied. And I, I could give you a test, and you would, and and you would blow it away if I gave a bunch of questions like that. You would give great answers on these things, and yet most of our students would not, right? And there again, there's experimental work on this. So you know, like I, I cite this one study where they asked you know advanced science students in college about the effect of sleep on you know, on student performance, and you know, like all these kids could do was say, well, it can't hurt to get enough sleep, you know, like garbage like that. So, like, even though they've had, they've spent years studying the experimental method, when you get them outside of the exact subject they're studying and just try, try give them a, a chance, an opportunity to apply their knowledge. I can't remember the sleep or nutrition actually, but to apply their knowledge of experimentation and correlation versus causation to a practical issue, almost all of them completely blew it because they have they, unlike you, have not internalized the stuff and probably never will. 
I have a different perspective. I'll just push back one more time and then you can respond if you want. And then we we have plenty of other things we need to talk about. (laughs) But my thought would be the following, which is that uh, these issues are really hard, uh, a lot of them. History, the subtlety of history, which I happen to enjoy. uh, I think the biggest impact of studying English is not how to, quote, read better. And it's not how to analyze a novel. That's occasionally what's done, but it's how to think about human beings. And I think that's what we get out of learning uh, reading fiction. And I think that's non-trivial. And I think it'd be extremely difficult to tease that out. And I'll just mention the... I mean, but you could totally do that. You could write a test to see whether English try. professors... Uh, do you mean, Russ, all right. No, no, all right, sorry. You're getting, you're getting me excited here. So I have to say this. Do you, really think that, do you really think that English professors have a especially profound knowledge of human nature because they've been reading a bunch of novels? They don't. Uh, I think they have more than they would have had if they hadn't read it. You've got a whole constant the ability so, so bias. So the kind of people that study English? Or like, could be, do you think it's socially inept people who it get could into be. English? It could get a PhD in English. It could be. I mean, I, again, I like, it, like, like the, the stereotype is that the English professors are the cool, charismatic ones, and we're the dorks. That's because we've – that's a very low bar. So, um, <laughs> yeah. the, the point I want to make yeah. – but I think, I think about the um, – I think about the – the famous uh, Monty Hall problem, the three-door problem. We'll put a link up to that. Uh, statistics professors messed it up, have messed it up, had trouble with it. doesn't mean they don't know any statistics. They haven't learned anything. Sometimes a quirky problem will come up. Even a regular problem out of your experience will be challenging. But you will eventually – it's not easy in that case for people, but you could eventually actually learn how to think about it. And I think the other aspect of that, which I just want to defend, is that on the job – a lot of what we know on learn on the job we did not learn in school. Absolutely, there's an enormous mm-hmm. amount of job specific uh-huh. human capital that we have to learn, and to acquire that, I think being able to learn is really good, is really important. And people who've been able to show they can learn and pass exams, or maybe are better at it, and they're signaling. Of course, I don't deny the yeah. signaling like like you would like you would point out, but I do think you can get better at that, and I think that's part of what school does. Well, so let me let me put it this way. So. I mean, it's one thing if there's an academic field where they find exactly what they wanted to find, and then you can say, eh, I don't believe those guys. Of course, that's what they found. What's, what's amazing about educational psychology is the people that go into it are educational idealists. They love education. They want to find out that education is wonderful. And yet you go and read the educational psychology, and then they're, they're, they're glumly saying, well, we've been searching for these effects of transfer learning for, for 100 years. I thought I could change things around, but I've been in it for 30 years now. I can't find anything either. I guess it's probably not there. And so like to me, when academics find something very unwelcome to them and they twist and turn it every way they can and they still keep getting the wrong answer and then they just say, okay, I guess that's the, that's the answer. That's the kind of research that I really trust and that's what it's like. That's a fair point. That's an excellent point. Um, well, and you, again, Chris. it could be that just they 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 struggle to deal with some of these measurement issues yeah. that I think are, are non trivial. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I, well, of course they're you know they're they're absolutely not trivial. But again, if, you know, if people have twisted and turned it every way, like oh, can we measure it in all these different ways? Can we do it differently? If there's you know a whole bunch of people making their careers, if they could get, if they could become the most famous educational educational psychologists by coming up with a way of showing that what everyone else thinks is wrong. I think it would have happened by now. I think it's just reasonable to say, look, you know, unless you're willing to go with it's just inherently ineffable, untestable, uh, then, you know, then, of course, you can never show it's wrong. But again, that just seems crazy to me to say that you can have a great skill that can never be demonstrated on a test, no matter how hard you try to design the test to pick it up. I mean, yeah, there's crummy tests, totally. I'd even but, say it more strongly than that. I'd say life's yeah. nothing like a test. 
And, and of course, that's the irony. It's an ironic comment, right? Because obviously, it's a strange way that we that we produce this signal, this credential by having people sit down and take do this thing that they're never really going to do ever again, right? There is some work under a deadline in the real world, but most of the work in the real world is nothing like sitting at a desk with a piece of paper and a clock ticking. So I, I will concede that, but I also will concede, I also would claim that at the age of 63, and when I think about the things that I understand and learn and how many of the things I've learned outside of school for sure, um, but I think school helped me learn them for starters. That's my first argument. And my second argument would be that the things that I have learned – and I, by the way, I think the thing I've learned the most from, for sure, is econ talk. I think being able to talk <laughs> with with smart people has been incredibly yeah. useful to me and kept me uh, intellectually curious mm-hmm. and and thoughtful. I hope, but I think it'd be really hard to show that on an exam. I really do, and I yeah. and I and I struggle. Right. And, and, that, and that's our only disagreement. I think so I I think that uh, that that Russ that I could write an exam that would actually show a bunch of ways that you've improved uh, be, uh, by doing econ talk. I really I really do. I think you'd show that I've learned about the existence of some things. So let me let me try two levels here. Mm-hmm. One I would call cocktail party. Mm-hmm. So econ talk listeners are I, I like to think very good at cocktail parties because when someone says Bitcoin, they think, oh, I learned about that years ago. Someone mentions uh some other uh thing that's going on. I try to have a diverse program. And I think people are there's a there's a cocktail party return from listening to econ talk. But if that's all it econ talk was, I'd be very disappointed. It's certainly not the only thing it is for me. Um, I actually think I've gotten smarter. I don't know. Again, I think it would be very hard to show that. But the cocktail party part, you could. Mm-hmm. You could say yeah. Bitcoin is A, B, C, D. You could have mm-hmm. a multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think about some of the more the stranger episodes we've done about things that turned out to, of course, many of them dropped off the radar, but some of them did arise and become popular and talked about and people would email and say, I learned about this years ago. Thanks for, for doing mm-hmm. econ talk. That's lovely. That's great for an exam. If, the, if life were an exam, but that's not the main return. Right. You know, so I mean, just to, just to mention someone that you mentioned earlier, Phil Tetlock, I'm a huge fan of him. Now he, I will say actually genuinely has, has improved my thinking. Uh, but I don't think that most people read his books have had their thinking improved. Right. And again, I say that there there actually are tests. I mean, really, all the Tetlock does is he tries to come up with, with testable ways of distinguishing good and uh, good and bad prediction, good and bad, uh, good and bad insight. And I will say from reading him, I've actually improved. But that's because I deeply internalize this. So, you know, you know I am Puritan, I'm a puritanical Tetlockian. I, right. I, I think about it all the time. And like whenever I say something like would Tetlock be on if he were the angel <laughs> on my shoulder, would he be would he would he be frowning in disapproval? Then I must repent. <laughs> but again, but, but I'm I, I'm I'm weird in this way in that when like yes, when I are. read something when I when I weird something weird when I weird something, when I read something that seems true to me. Like I just feel these this 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 weight on the world. I must repent. I can't keep living the way I used to live anymore. I've got to go and incorporate this knowledge into into my, into my decisions day after day, and I'm a sinner if I don't. But again, that is such a weird response to a book. Most people most people read Tetlock Super Forecasting and say, "Oh yeah, it's so interesting. Some people are uh, some people are really great at this stuff. Yeah, yeah, great." And then they go back and live live their normal lives. Well, that's my other point. This stuff's really hard. Learning, knowledge, mm-hmm. wisdom. It's easy to learn how many senators there are. I think I could – with if I told you that I'd pay you in five years a uh, million dollars to tell me how many senators there are, I think you'd keep track of it. If uh-huh. I told you in a million – year in five years, you need to explain to me the um, central limit theorem, I think you'd struggle. A lot of people would struggle. You wouldn't, but a lot of people would yeah. struggle. 
For, so, for, a million, for a million bucks, I think we could get up to 10% of the population. We might. Yeah, yeah, we might for a million bucks. But, I, but my point is, is that these things are really hard, and the process mm-hmm. by which they're required is not straightforward. And I often use the, uh, the metaphor of drops on a rock, that, that for something mm-hmm. to finally go in and to be accepted and to be really in your bones, you have to hear it a lot of different ways, a lot of different times. Some people like you. You're unusual. You know, you can see that you're unusual. You're going to grab, grab, grapple with it and, and struggle with it till you master it. And, and it's going to bug you until you don't. So you do. But most people aren't like that. You're right. And yeah. they acquire these. That's, that's exactly my point is since they don't do that, they don't really learn it. Well, I don't think they learn it right away. I think they learn it over time. I think they learn it through the accumulation of, of those lessons, those observations. I think that's the way. And we, and through, Stories and narratives that grab our attention. Otherwise, you know, we just didn't note, literally didn't even notice something that, that we've actually seen, you know, five or six times. Uh, but finally, the sixth time, something clicks and, and something uh, and something gets embedded in our understanding. Something deep, not a fact. Mm-hmm. Facts are cheap. Facts are easy. That's not the goal of education, and never never should have been, and even less so now with with the internet and and, and Google is silly to memorize. I mean, like, like I say, given that we're teaching facts, if people don't even learn the, learn the facts they're taught, why why should we be optimistic that they're learning some deeper things that are, they're never tested on and don't have to do and don't? We shouldn't, we shouldn't teach the facts, and you and I don't. I've been in your class. I don't think you've been in mine, but a good economics right. class doesn't give a multiple choice test that says the uh, the ratio of the price is equal to A, the ratio of the marginal substitution, B, the slope of the production possibility frontier, C, the et cetera. So that's not the those are that's a bad class. Uh, you don't oh, teach right, that way. Right. Yeah, but most classes are bad classes. <laughs> well, that's a separate issue. I agree with well, that. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, so you know, in the book, I'm talking about education as it really is. I'm not talking about what education could be, which is much harder. I'm just saying, look, does the current education system actually teach people how to think? And that's what I'll say, barely. Well, I, I think there's some plenty of problems with our K-12 and our college education system. Um, I, I like your point, which you made before that uh, people cheer when their class is canceled, which is somewhat unintuitive for the human capital story. But I thought about that. So it's always, that made me think a lot as did the sheep's going to affect. We'll get to that next. But the, the, the point I would ask you to think about in the, in the cheering when the class is canceled, is it's hard. It's kind of like on, you're on the way to work, you're on the way to the gym and you get there and it's been, uh, it's temporarily closed. There was a, a pipe broke and there's a water leak. And so you can't do your, your workout. And a party just goes, Thank goodness. Oh, I don't have to do that again. Now, some people get good at working out and they love it. And after a while, it becomes easier and a pleasure. But, and that's true for education. But for a lot of people, it's just hard and it's not fun. And I think one of the great illusions that you don't poke fun at, you poke fun at a lot of them and, and very well in the book. But one of the illusions you don't poke fun at is that learning should be fun. Well, it should be fun when you can make it fun. But a lot of times it's not fun. It's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's a slog. And you're right. Most people struggle to, to finish the slog. Most people struggle to get through the slog. But I don't think we should ever pretend it's straightforward, like teaching facts. It's not. Right, right. So on the class cancellation point, I do consider your story, but there's a problem with it, Russ, which is so at least in college, the students don't have to come to class. And of course, as we know, they often don't. Right. But you can always not come to class anytime you want. What students like is when the whole class is canceled. So no one has to go. And then and the key difference between unilaterally skipping a class and having the whole class canceled, it's not like going to the gym. It's it, it's more like if the, if the whole gym is closed and then you aren't – like, that would be weird, right? Like, well, what difference does it make? But for school, it matters because you say, well, now 
it's never the, 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 the uh, employers are ahead employers of never me. Know. They're not going to get ahead. And my fellow classmates aren't going to get ahead of me yes, when I can't get ahead of me. Yes, yeah, there's some truth to yeah. that, and there's some there's yes. a weird which, thing which again, which again fits with signaling more than this myopia story of people are just lazy. Again, they're all of course the laziness is a big factor too, which is why so many people don't finish college, even though it's really not that hard if you just put in the work. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make an observation, which is not necessarily related to this I, that comes to me now, which is it's a very strange thing, the way we grade, which is that there's sort of a grading on a curve and there's sort of an absolute standard, but it's never mm-hmm. really articulated. And everybody does their own thing. And at college, in high schools, there could be a oversight mm-hmm. where somebody says, don't do this, don't do that. Right. But we have a lot of freedom as university professors to grade the way we want. Of course. And, and we, we I, are, we are, we're artists, Russ. You yeah. can't tell an artist what to do. <laughs> it is, but it's an interesting thing that, that the professor who has standards, so-called standards, and doesn't grade on a curve uh, could eventually find no students attending her class as well as uh, – having uh, the other end, having really wonderful course evaluations because everybody gets an A. And yet there's no really global oversight of that. Mm-hmm. Of that. And of course, we've seen great inflation. To me, it's surprising we haven't seen it just go to a 4 all yeah, across the board. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it comes down to, like, like whenever we criticize professors, how lazy they are or whatever, like the main thing is, well, think about what a normal person would do uh, give it, given these incentives. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think most people, if they had, if they were given a tenure, a tenure track job, they would do virtually nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, you know, they, they wouldn't publish anything. And, you know, I think, you know, they probably would go to class because they feel embarrassed, but, you know, but then once they were in there, I think they would just give, you know, give practically everybody A's. And, you know, so again, it, it does speak something to the character of professors that our consciences won't allow us to be as lazy as we could be. Well, that's that's kind of the uh, that's the ability issue again. You know, that it tends to attract oh, yeah. people who yeah who like yeah, who, um, who like like their subject. And yeah, yeah, I remember when I first became a professor, I was dismayed at how many people, you know, how many professors didn't seem to love their subject anymore. But again, in hindsight, I said, you know, you should be amazed at how many people do love the subject still after all these years and all the disappointments, Correct. and they still then they still they wake up in the morning and say, ah, history, it's great. So, so I'm going to turn to the sheepskin effect. Before I do that, I have to get in a comment that, that I, was ta- I was having dinner last night with my son. And I mentioned to him that uh, I was doing an econ talk the next day with uh, with Brian Kaplan and about education. And I, ma- I laid out the case. Uh, I laid out the different arguments and, and got some of his uh, reaction. And, and I wanted him to understand those issues. I thought it was really interesting. And I, and I do. And, and he said – Boy, he must speaking about you, Brian. He said he must be awfully depressed doing something <laughs> day in and day out that has no value, having people wasting years of their life sitting in a classroom. So I just wanted to pass that on. And I have to say, by by the way, uh, he didn't realize at first you were a professor. Mm-hmm. So his first thought was you were just having to argue that people were wasting their lives when i told him that you were actually had a hand in it he was he was even more uh worried about you so I, i'd like to get your reaction to that uh sure so you know, you know what, I, what i would say is that you know i get meaning from doing high quality work that i think is intrinsically good and i mean so again like the, the research that i do I mean, I have some hope that it will exert some small influence on public policy but i'm not in no way convinced that will occur but, you know, like, I, to me, I get a lot of meaning out of just writing, writing a book that I think is excellent and did a great job and that a small number of, uh, you know, of, 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 of people who appreciate that kind of thing and who savor it will like it. 
you know, so you know, like if there's like 10 people who read my book and say, wow, this is a great book. It's so insightful. That to me justifies my, uh, justifies my existence. Uh, you know, I mean, I feel like what I'm doing is worthwhile. Of course, it doesn't hurt that. that do you know about uh, this I, opportunity I, cost thing, Brian? Yeah, well, I mean, I also, ten I also, people. You could do better than that. Oh, come I on! Also, I, I also get. I also get paid. I also get. You know, you have a night. Have a nice upper middle class or higher lifestyle from doing all this stuff. I enjoy it a lot. So, you know, but when like, you are in your yeah. just like we talk about the students who are who cheer when class is canceled. Yeah. When you're on your way to class, do you say, oh, "Here I am teaching another hour of meaningless nonsense"? So what I'm thinking about is there's you know two or three students in the class who like it and that's good enough and I'm happy to talk to them and uh, and uh, those students give it meaning yeah if they were all just you know, like 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 staring into space then uh, then that would bother me but uh, although I mean yes honestly I just enjoy talking about it so much and as long as <laughs> as long as as long as there's a one person in the room who seems to be not looking in my direction I think I can actually I can actually have fun doing the performance you know just like an actor might perform Shakespeare to themselves and get something out of it but yeah you know begin but to me what real what 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 gives me satisfaction is the small minority students who you know, like who do genuinely enjoy it yeah so actually 2 days ago I went back to my high school and talked to their economics class and you know, like most of the students there were typical high school students. Uh, this is a required class; they have to be there. Un- unsurprisingly, no matter how hard I try, they're not very interested in what I have to say. But afterwards, one student came up and said, "Wow, that was fascinating! Like, where can I learn more?" And like, I, like I enjoy like that student alone like gave gave me a high for uh, for an hour or two. Say, like, "Wow, there's like that kid. He seemed seemed like really sincere." And you know, like you know, he knows I'm not giving him a grade or anything. And like like so, may- maybe that, that like he got some value out of it. And, you know, like, and to me, that's, you know, that, that's, that's plenty, you know, yeah. So I am a big fan of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, whose recipe for happiness is set your expectations super low. And I've, uh, and I try to do that <laughs> and, and it works and my expectations are really low and I'm happy with what I get. Well, I'm going to, you know? I'm going to quote Mel Brooks, which I don't get to do that often on this program. Uh, his masterpiece, in my view, underappreciated is the 12 chairs <laughs> and the theme, which is a phenomenal movie, uh, I, heard, I hope that's I hope that's encouraging laughter, Brian. Not skeptical laughter, uh, but in that movie, the theme song is uh, "Hope for the Best, Expect the Worst," which is um, very consistent with your with your uh, your motto there. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, just to sum it up, like like you know, like why am I not depressed? Let's see, because I get I get paid a comfortable income to do whatever whatever fascinates me. So like like why would that be depressing? That's I mean, it's well, you know, I would just say that you know this job is so good for the professors. That if you had expl- told me what my life was going to be like when I was twelve, I just would have said you're lying. This is no way that you could there can be a paid job this good, right? And I mean, like if people take my book seriously, it will be terrible for me because I absolutely love this job. It's fantastic for me, but I do at least feel like I need to be a whistleblower and let taxpayers know that they're getting ripped off. Yeah, so I disagree with you, but that's okay. Uh, I loved going to class when I was in the classroom, and I think. Um, more than three people were paying attention, and I think there are more than three people paying attention when you, when you'd speak. And I think what they learn well, actually you taught, class, you taught big classses, though, right? Ten <laughs> percent. Let's say ten percent. No, I could do better than ten percent. I think you can too. But the point is that I think even the ninety that weren't riveted to my every word, like they are to yours, that ninety percent I think got something out of the class, and I even think it could have helped them in life. And perhaps even in the job market, uh, which is always interesting. Yeah. But that's could, could could have, but yeah. did you yeah. think your student? You think you know, like what fraction of your students walk out of movies after you taught them about opportunity cost, or what's the change? 
That's more complicated. Anything, anything, anything. That's more but complicated. It's one, it's one of the easiest applications of opportunity cost in the universe, and it doesn't happen. You need to walk out in the middle of a movie. Yeah, because look, you've already paid the money. You're not enjoying it. Leave. Like that's you know, that's like you know like basic opportunity cost, and yet. How many, how many students are persuaded to do that because they took an economics class? So I'm going to digress for a minute. This is off, <laughs> off subject. I think that's a total misunderstanding of the lesson of opportunity cost because it, it – Oh, invo- right. Sorry. Uh, no, I don't. I agree with you. I won't. I don't finish every book I start, and it did take me a long time to do to learn that lesson. And despite the fact that I taught people about opportunity cost, uh, but I think the I think if we stop doing the things we don't enjoy, we would lead a very bad life, and because I, I think there are many things in life that we don't enjoy that turn out to be worth it. And I think that's the it's ironic because that's what I've been suggesting is true about education. But I want to move on. I want to move on to the sheepskin effect, and I'm going to introduce it with a quote from your book, which is a great quote. It says, imagine this stark dilemma. You can have either a Princeton education without a diploma or a Princeton, Dipl- Princeton diploma without an education. Which gets you further on the job market? For a human capital purist, the answer is obvious. Four years of training are vastly preferable to a page of, to a page of paper. But try saying that with a straight face. Sensible versions of the signaling model don't imply the diploma is clearly preferable. After all, Princeton teaches some useful skills. But you need signaling to explain why choosing between an education and a diploma is a head-scratcher rather than a no-brainer. And I think that's a fantastic example, of course, you to think about. Think about it. You, of course, have a Princeton diploma, a PhD from Princeton in economics. Uh, I want you to make that case, uh, lay that out a little bit more clearly than I just read it quickly. Uh, what's the issue there? Why is it a head scratcher rather than a no brainer? Well, because when you post hypothetical, people at least think about it. They're saying, well, hmm, well, which one would be better? And say, well, on the one hand, I could have that Princeton education, but then people wouldn't know that I had it. And how would I get people to actually give me a chance or opportunities based upon that? Say, on the other hand, if I had that Princeton diploma, then that would open a lot of doors, but maybe they would find that I was a fraud. Hmm, which is better? Which is better? So that's the sense in which it's a head scratcher, just that you do have to think about it. And there's arguments on both sides, and it's confusing. Which is inter- and it's interesting that it's confusing. It's interesting that it's not something we can say. Well, duh. Of course, it's better to have the education because then you know stuff and you know how to do things. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're on a desert island and you say, would it be better to have a diploma <laughs> in survival studies right now that you without the survival skills or the survival skills without diploma in the desert island? Oh, of course, I want the survival skills. Duh, I want to have food. But in society. It is a difficult question because uh, education is not is so much about convincing other people that you are worthy of opportunity, convincing them that you are worthy of receiving training in the actual job. Yeah, once you, once there's that other person on the desert island who can look up to you because you've got the degree, then it, that's yeah. a totally different. That, 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 then, it, then again, it's like, well, which one is better? Would it be better to be perceived as this or to actually be this? I mean, like, like, like even like, would it be better to be perceived as healthy or actually to be healthy? And you know, again, like you say, well, probably actually healthy, but you know, like, what if people think that you have the plague and you don't? Like, well, like then, like no one talks to you and everyone stays away from you and no one wants to hire you. Maybe it'd be better to have it have, have at least a more minor sickness, but to be mistakenly thought to be thought to be fine, and then other people treat you nicely, and then your life is great. So I think it's a fantastic example because it forces me, who is uh, less of a signaling guy and more of ability and and human capital guy, to to concede. I think immediately. That, oh, yeah, there is a signaling effect of that credential. The credential is certainly a way that people in a world of imperfect information and asymmetric information uh, 
economize on that problem, fix that problem by by using this piece of paper, this certificate, this credential. Um, it does raise the puzzle, and, and again, I promise we're going to get to sheepskin, which is a harder situation for for purists to explain on human capital grounds. But um, it does raise a question, which is. I can understand what that could help me get in the door, the Princeton piece of paper. But as you mm-hmm. point out, if I don't have the skills, I'm going to maybe struggle uh, unless I've got native ability to hide that. Um, shouldn't the signaling effect diminish over time when people get more information about me? All right. So there is a little bit of empirical evidence saying that that's actually true and that the signaling effect does diminish over time. I would say that the evidence. I think it diminishes. Yeah. think it diminish a yeah. lot, though, if you're yes. really a skeptic. Right. Right. Yes. So I mean, you know, so you know, so in the book, I go over a bunch of reasons why you should think why why you shouldn't be so so convinced that it would that it would diminish quickly. Uh, again, so, you know, so one one of them is just that there's actually a lot of resistance to firing people in in, in modern economy. Some of that is legal. You're worried about getting sued, but a lot of it is just basic human empathy. Where once you name the puppy, once you get to know another human being, you don't <laughs> want to go and fire. You don't want to go and fire them. Yeah. Uh, economists hardly ever talk about this, but I found there's a whole literature in sociology on how firing actually happens. And but you can also just go and ask a room full of anyone and send, you know, I mean, I, this is a question I do like to ask my students and it does engage with students, by the way, more than more than most of the other stuff. And I say, all right, first of all, how many people here have a job? And at Mason, I'd say it's 80 percent of the students raise their hand. All right. How many of those out of those people who have a, who have a job? How many people uh, are at a job where there's at least one worker that everybody knows is incompetent and almost all the hands stay up? Everybody knows this person's incompetent. So why hasn't this person been fired yet? And you know, so, you know, so, you know, and like you know, the 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 answer is well, people feel sorry for this person, and like you know, like it's not they're not that bad. Maybe the person's nice, but also, but you know, or maybe the boss just doesn't have the guts to go and fire the person. And then, so you know, like once you realize that, you know, contrary to say Gary Becker, at least what Gary Becker suggested, that people who are not who are below expectation don't immediately get fired. Then there's also the fact that it, that uh, it's very common that when you search for another job, that your that your employer who doesn't like you helps you by lying or by or by by uh, by uh, by hiding the truth because they feel guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, to yeah. Them. yeah. So there's actually a whole specialty of people who folk who try to help employers with termination, and they have a special word for this that I use in the book. They call it dehiring. Don't fire workers. Dehire them. Help them to become somebody else's problem. And then by the time that that employer realizes that they hired an incompetent worker, they've once again named the puppy, and they're sort of in the same situation that you were. So I think it's, it's actually quite reasonable to think that once you've got the right when – you know, when, once you get your foot in the door, and as long as your personality does not make people hate you, that you really can you know, coast on fumes for a very long time. Now, again, you're, probably, you're not going to be getting great promotions. You're not going to be considered the best worker, but still – um, you, know, you know, it makes perfect sense that actually a fake diploma could keep helping you for a very long time, although you know, probably it does, def- you know, it becomes a, you know, a bit less valuable over time, right? As you, you know, again, like not getting promotions that you would normally expect with, for, say, a Princeton graduate. But, but still, I say it makes perfect sense that actually this is true. And then on top of that, there is a reason that Deben Becker should acknowledge, which is suppose that you're only at the 40th percentile of what the employer expected you to be when they hired you. They probably won't fire you because the, the cost of replacing you is high enough that it's easier to just settle for moderate disappointment. Yeah, but you don't have the same – as you say, you don't have the same job raises. you think that would show up in, in the data more – more yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not that it doesn't show up in the data. Is you know there, there hasn't been that much. That, there's this, there's the research is pretty thin. There is one paper on the sheepskin effect over time that finds that over the course of a, of a few decades, uh, a lot of it goes away. But yeah, we are talking decades. 
So let's talk about the sheepskin effect because we're talking about it a little bit in passing. Sheepskin effect mm-hmm. is the idea that the sheepskin is the is the your diploma. Yes. It's just a fancy right, right. old-fashioned name because as right. we learned in the last episode, uh, it used to be written on sheepskin, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, that's the one of the least important cocktail party things I've learned from you, Brian. One of the more important <laughs> cocktail party things, and I'm going to now make your case for you, is that I was surprised to learn, and I, I think it's actually true, that people who have some college, even some reasonably large amount of college, like three years mm-hmm. – don't do that much better than people who didn't go at all, uh, right. suggesting that the, the credential itself, the finishing itself, rather than the knowledge you acquire is what's mm-hmm. rewarded in the labor market. Summarize that literature and and make the case for signaling there. Sure. Uh, so back in the 70s, when signaling first came along, there was an immediate debate about it, saying, well, if signaling is true, then we'd expect that a lot of the payoff for education would come from finishing. And then when the, the data was sufficiently crummy that they, their act, the debate went on for, uh, for about 15 years, and then finally uh, there were some papers based upon uh, very good data that very strongly confirmed that the sheepskin effect was true, namely that most of the payoff for education comes from crossing the finish lines from diploma years. Especially for for college, you know, like the sheepskin effect is enormous. For high school, it's still quite it's still still you know not as big, but still but still very large, right? And from a human capital point of view, this is bizarre because it's like, well, why would the last year pay so much more than the earlier years? Is it because we save all the useful job skills for senior year and then we only teach them then? What's well, like the la- all the calories are in the last brownie? So if you don't eat that yeah. one, it's not fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know that that's 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 very that's very very. I probably funny. made that joke before. I apologize. <laughs> ah, no, it's, 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 it's a good joke. I'm going to use it. But, but yeah, so I mean, again, so that so that so that's that's pretty weird as to why that would be. Uh, now, you know, so there, there are some economists, you know, we're just about to back up. So once the data became totally clear, then there, uh, rather than there being a massive surrender to the signaling model, there were new models that came along that said, oh, well, you could totally get that in a regular model. All you need is some ability bias, right? Uh, well, yeah, which, which in principle is true. So you could say, well, maybe the graduates just had some pre-existing massive advantages over the non-graduates. This does mean, of course, that if you randomly forced someone to not take their final exams in the last year, senior year. They would still do just. They would still do virtually as well as someone who did do those exams. But there's. But again, we hardly ever observe that, so it's hard to use that thought experiment to actually thoroughly disprove it. So, but anyway, but you know, so the you know, the economists who are aware of the of the sheepskin effect will often say, yeah, it could you know, it could all just be ability bias. Although, yeah, here what I'll say is, look. There are some of the papers do have measures for ability, and it doesn't seem to change the ratio of the payoff for graduation to a regular year at all. So all you can really say is that it's uh, like sure, uh, you know, there's an enormous effect. I don't believe it. None of none of none of my actual concrete efforts to debunk it work. But one day it's going to get debunked somehow. I mean, yeah. So of course you can always say that, and there's nothing you know like like you can't convince a person like that, but. But I would just say this is the kind of thing where if you combine common sense, you know, the common sense of every parent, every teacher, everyone who's ever advised a dissertation, like, does it matter if I actually finish? Yes, it matters. <laughs> the world will not forgive you if you don't finish. You better finish. Don't, you know, your, your kid says, I decided to drop out one semester before graduation. Don't you dare. You finish that degree. I don't care how you do it. You better finish it. Right? This is, you know, so given that we got common sense of almost everybody who doesn't have some dogmatic reason to disbelieve it combined with all the evidence says it's real and none of the debunking efforts work. I say it's what you see is what you get. Sheepskin effect is there. It's huge. 
And again, there, there is the interesting question of, like, does the signaling model necessarily imply it? And, and no, because the you know, signaling model could just say every year that you, that you suffer gives right, you a little you more certification. Yeah. Right? But uh, this is where it's very important to think about, well, what exactly does education signal? And I say the sheepskin effect is a clue that one of the main things that it signals is conformity to social expectations, which isn't quite the same thing as being hardworking. Yep. We, 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 we both have people who are very hardworking, but are their defiant personalities. And you know, I love defiant personalities. They're fun people, but I don't want to hire them. Right. Right. Uh, and well, I, you I might. Guess, you yeah. might. I, I just uh. I just have to intervene here. I, I just have to interject here because a, a CEO once once told me that his his best workers uh, who were responsible for an enormous portion of their of the revenue from the company were the people that HR always tried to keep them keep him from hiring because they they had he said they had they had uh, hard edges. The HR people liked. Mm-hmm. People where everything had been kind of smoothed over and weren't going to cause any trouble and that defiant thing and the contrarian outside the box thing. But he yeah, said, you, know, you really yeah, need those. You got to have some of those people because they, they they generate the ideas that that make the business successful. Right. You know, so you know, again, the word is one where it applies to to a wide range of people. So there's the uh, you know, there's the, there's, the hard, there's the person who puts the job first, who, who but who isn't nice, and those kinds of people can be great workers. And there's the kind of person who the boss says, we really need to do this. And they say, screw you. I don't want to do that. And that kind of person, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody wants to hire those people. And like you say, like, like we're, we're here to make money. No, I'm here to make money for myself. I don't care what happened to this firm. I know. Well, well then you can do it someplace else. So I'm, I can see that that's all of this we're talking about. It's very, I think is evidence for the shapes going to, for the signaling model. And I think it, it, there is definitely some measure of conformity, that is being signaled that is of value to mm-hmm. to employers. And I encourage people to go back to listen to the uh, episode of Econ Talk we did with uh, Taleb on uh, Skin in the Game. The first mm-hmm. uh, one we did where uh, he talks about the difference between an employer and a contractor. And he suggests that employers are more like a slave and you much rather have a docile slave than a, than a non-docile one. So that's just, that's an interesting side note. Um, before we, Finish. I, I want you to defend child labor, which you don't <laughs> see that often in a book published by Princeton University Press. Uh, you make the case for child labor. I want to hear it again and let the audience hear it. Uh, sure. So, of course, you know, in the 19th century, kids had a lot of jobs that would seem terrible to us, and in third world countries, uh, that you know that remains true. Although I think it's it's overstated as to how how bad uh, you know children uh, child labor in the third world generally is. Uh, but anyway, there's an idea that it, that it, that it's that it's you know that it's somehow intrinsically horrible for a kid for a kid to be working at all. And uh, my question is, well, why aren't they learning? You know, so it seems like they're learning some useful skills. They're making money. Why? You know, why is that so bad? I mean, it's it's one thing to say that you don't want them working in jobs where they're going to where they're going to lose fingers, but why not have them work in uh, you know in a work at really just to work a few hours a week in a job that that is that that they don't mind very much. And there is this idea. Well, that's terrible because it's distracting them from their school. And I say, well, but you know, maybe they're actually learning something more useful on the job than in school. So maybe it'd be better if they were if they just moved some of their time over to working from school. And then then there's an idea of well, but it's just a shame that a child doesn't get to enjoy childhood and that they're there like on an assembly line doing something boring. And like, well, have you looked at school? Like all of these complaints apply to school too. So like, why is it okay? For a kid to suffer and be bored in school and to have their movement confined and not to be free to act like a kid, but they can't do it for money. 
right? And again, that to me makes really no sense at all. I just have no idea where people are coming from. Uh, and it just seems like there's this huge double standard where if kids suffer in school, then they should just toughen up, tough luck. That's the life's not fair. But if they, if they but if they have a somewhat unpleasant experience when they're actually getting job experience, that's something terrible. And it's a sick society that would allow something like that. So, you know, what I say is, you know, just like schools used to do terrible things to kids, you know, my, I mentioned in the books that my mom went to a Catholic school where the nuns did hit children with sticks on their hands. Like, so, you know, to say, well, that used to happen, so school is bad today seems dumb. And similarly to say there used to be kids getting black lung from cleaning chimneys, all right, well, that's not the kind of, of work we're talking about for kids. Uh, so, and then from a signaling point of view, what I say is that, uh, you know, it is much better for people to actually get practical work experience. So even if the effect and earnings of, of work in schools, the work experience in school are the same, still from a social point of view, it's better that they're getting work experience because that, that is primarily actually acquiring skills rather than just showing off. Yeah, so where we agree on this, Brian, we agree on a lot here on this part, actually. I'd like to see kids, at least teenagers, working more. And I like the idea that I do think their opportunity cost is 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 small, not not as small as you think it is, but I think it's smallish. Uh, I do think we should make school more interesting. My wife's a math teacher. Her kids actually say, "I love calculus." Uh, so, more than two or three, even. So, I I do think it can be done. I think we have a lousy education system. We agree on that, and you have some very interesting things to say about the separation of um, school and state that uh, we we've addressed. Uh, on this program before, and we'll, I hope we'll continue to address in the future, have an episode just devoted to that. But I want to close with the following. I, I'm surprised because this is not my field anymore. I actually was a labor economist in, in graduate school, uh-huh. meaning I took a field in it. And uh, I, I knew about signaling. I went to Chicago. You know, Becker and Heckman were my professors. They're not big supporters. They're big human capital folk. Sure. So they're, they're not so sympathetic. And over the years, I've become more sympathetic to the signaling idea, partly through your work, I'd say mostly through your work. So I salute you for that. All right. Thank you, Russ. Uh, but I'm you just surprised. Made, you just made, made my life meaningful. There you go. It's easy. It's so easy. You're uh, one of the 10. I'm one of the 10. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, I'm one of the two or three in your, in your virtual classroom. But um, I'm surprised the profession didn't join me. I, I was surprised, at least in your book, you portray mainstream labor economists as being so much more skeptical of signaling mm-hmm. as they were in the early days. So mm-hmm. close talking about the, I, the sociology of that phenomenon, the empirical part of it. Obviously, they think they have evidence for their view, and you've suggested mm-hmm. that evidence is not as as convincing as it should, as it might be. Uh, but why do you think more people haven't come over to this viewpoint? And why are you, 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 you paint a picture in the book. I don't think it's just marketing. I think it's true. Of being intellectually lonely, I think you're on a bit of an outpost here. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think that's true? Right, right. So uh, just to back up a little bit, I don't know that signaling was ever a popular theory, even in the 70s. So you know, it's important to distinguish between the high status of the theorists, like Michael Spence and Stieglitz, that are doing signaling models, and yeah, they got Nobel prizes. Arrow. So of course, there's the right, yeah, Arrow, of course. Uh, but I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I don't think that it was ever consi- ever taken that empirically seriously. It was more like like a gadfly on the side saying, "Oh yeah, there's that signaling thing we might have to deal with." Now, why is it that opinion hasn't changed as the evidence is mounted? So I think there's a few things going on. One is that a lot of the best evidence comes from outside of economics, and economists, like almost everybody else, have having not invented here syndrome, where they don't actually care to uh, care to study educational psychology. They don't need. They don't. They're not curious about what goes on inside the black box of education. They don't read sociology. So a lot again, a lot of the best evidence just is 
discipline by disciplinary grounds not their area and they just ignore it and and just and just tend to be dismissive of it or not even be aware that it exists uh, so they think that that's one big part of the problem um and, you know an, another another thing that's going on i think is that you know signaling it, it, it is harder because it means that you can't just go and do a regression of income on education and say aha you know like, like we're, we're getting job training out of this so you know like, like like distinguishing the two requires additional work and again at least for economists the economists tend to this functionalist view of the world. The world makes sense, not just for individuals, but from a social point of view. So I have gotten this, well, if you're right, how come every country does it this way? Right? And you know, I have this other book, The Myth of Rational Order. I hate where, that where, argument. Where, yes, I, where, that argument yeah, is so yeah. despicable. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, what's, why is that evidence for anything? It's like saying, you know, in 1500, all the all the other all the countries in the world torture their citizens. So it must. What's wrong? How could you be against torture? Yeah, it's a bizarre yeah, yeah. Log, it, the logic of it. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I, I interrupted yeah, you. Yeah, you know, like like you know, and Stigler, uh, Stigler. I don't know. Was he one of your teachers too? No. Oh, Stigler. I mean, yes, Stigler. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Stigler, yeah, yeah. So he's more to blame for this than almost anyone, probably. <laughs> this this functionalism of just rationalizing whatever exists is, is really being a good idea. And then I think that yeah, then I think that yeah, then I think that you know that you know there is just the romanticization of education. So you always always have to remember that anyone who's a researcher, professor was always probably always a good student for their whole lives, and it's just hard for them to get inside the head of someone that didn't find it to be a rewarding experience. And and again, there's there's what what uh, I didn't actually call it this in the book because it grossed people out, but. Uh, you know, I see you know, a lot of what's going on with edu- with the professors is what I call intellectual incest, where you go and study something and then you teach the very thing that you studied, which then creates the illusion that that what you that what you learned is useful because you use it. But that doesn't mean that, that, that what about the students that don't become professors? When are they actually going to use this stuff? Right. And then I think on t- on top of everything else, I think there is there is a bit of left wing bias of just of you know, we you know, we love government, we love the idea of government going and and supporting this thing. Although what's interesting is this is one where it's easy for economists to be bipartisan because Democrats, Democratic economists can love education because it's government uh, government social engineering, and Republican economists can love it because it's not a handout. You have to work to get the value of the education. So there's sort of a puritanical aspect of it. And at least it seems more like it's focused on, on uh, increasing the size of the pie rather than just redistribution. So it appeals to Republican economists more for more for that reason. And again, I think also like you know, Republican economists wants to have one thing they can say government totally should do, and education is education is that thing, mm. right? So I think you know, so I think all, I think all all of these factors are work. And again, of course, I think they would say that it's just the strength of the evidence. Uh, but again, I would just say that. The evidence that they have, you know, again, like you know, what what the papers they're publishing are, are you know, I, I don't say that they're wrong. I just say that they don't mean what they think they mean. And of course, in economics, uh, it's a lot easier to advance by going and solidly proving a fact than by convincingly ar- convincingly arguing that the fact means something important. Oh, that's I, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what's going on. So again, I'm not saying that that their work is wrong. I'm just saying that they are. A, Ignoring or unaware of other work that's also good that 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 when you snap it all together uh, provides a totally different story. Of what's going on and that story is signaling very very important. My guest today has been Brian Kaplan. Brian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It is a pure joy to be here, Russ. Hope to be here again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. 
Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.